Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the next episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you today, Rick? I'm doing great, Sarah. Yourself? Not too bad. I am glad it's Friday. Yeah, recording on a Friday afternoon. I guess we don't have much of a social life expectation, do we? Well, you know, with COVID, you can't really go out and be social very much. So, And, And we certainly can't be outside right now. It's a little chilly for that. Yeah, it is. But we have an awesome guest today, and we hope you all um, enjoy this uh, as well. Uh, Alice Sato is joining us today. I think she's our first pediatrician, isn't she? She is. Yeah, pediatric infectious disease, hospital epidemiologist at Children's Hospital. Going to get to talk about a lot of things today. So welcome, Alice. Hi, thanks for having me. I appreciate being able to represent for pediatrics. Yes, and I just want to start this out by saying bless you for taking care of the kids. Um, And we were all talking before we started and uh, kids are not my thing. So we really appreciate what you do. So I often have said that there are three types of people. There are people who don't like kids so they don't work with kids. And there are people like you, it sounds like, who like kids but really can't take that discomfort of being around them. And then there's the sort of mean parent type like me who will hold you down and, you know, do what needs to be done and get through it (laughs) because (laughs) that's what, you know, make you eat your vegetables and make sure you get your shots on time and make sure that you're washing your hands before you eat and all that kind of stuff where, you know, you feel like, well, if we aren't doing something, then no one's helping. Yeah. And I am that kind of parent. I'm definitely that kind of parent. I think my issue with working with kids is parents most of the time. (laughs) So it's a different world. It's definitely a different world. Agree. I don't know if I could do it, but, uh, but thank you. We, we definitely need it and are happy that you are excellent at what you do and keeping our kids mostly healthy, right? I mean, that's the goal with lots of pediatrics, right? Is lots of prevention. Yes. Um, Education uh, and prevention are high on our list of things to do. So sometimes that's just explaining to families that what they're seeing is normal or developmentally appropriate or, you know, yes, they're sick, but it's okay. We know how this is going to go to, um, you know, the more extreme or sad cases where, you know, we really do have to explain, well, this is what we're worried about. This is why we're concerned. Uh, This is what we're thinking about. Uh, Sometimes we look for, you know, what we call badness just to make sure that there's not something. And, you know, that can be very hard for parents to hear that you have to make sure that it's not something really serious. And sometimes it's very hard to tell, like with little babies, they can't tell you much. And so you don't necessarily have a whole lot to go on. Uh, And it can be very hard for parents, even medical parents who just don't do small children to know whether what they're seeing is abnormal or not abnormal or to tell 
how much there's a change and our metrics for deciding what is you know, appropriate for, I don't feel well, so therefore I'm more clingy and I just don't wanna do anything versus I can't do anything. So we end up you know, sort of trying to help families navigate that. And then you get parents who've been through a very traumatic illness with their child and then they're like worried about something and they don't just want us to say, well, that vague symptom is fine. Whereas the vague symptom that was <laughs> landed your child in the hospital, that one was concerning. So sometimes people need help to kind of view what they're looking at and to understand when we're concerned, when we're not concerned. And I think it really helps to explain, well, this is why I'm not concerned, or this is why I'm concerned in this situation so that they can learn with you and get a better gauge on their child, but they are also the best person to ask about their child. Yeah, it's difficult. I imagine sometimes healthcare providers with children could potentially be the worst because they kind of know some of the bad things and, and, you know, and every little symptom or change or something could be something disastrous. Although I suspect almost all the time it's not except for that yeah, time I mean, that it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and sometimes things change fast in medicine, right? So sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. And then sometimes in all of medicine, we don't figure out what happened, right? So many times I can go in and start talking to a family because I'm consulted because there's concern for an infection. And that child is allowed to get better without me. And I may not know exactly what they were sick with, but if they get better, I'm okay with that, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So um, we don't always have an answer. We don't always have an answer right away, or we think we have an answer. And then as time goes on and they get older, we learn, oh, maybe this was the beginning of something longer, right? Because if you think about um, one of the services I help cover is for immune compromised patients. But when you first see children, you know, somebody has to figure out they're immune compromised. And so we don't always know that when we first meet them, but you start to get a sense that, oh, you know, this seems a little bit more prolonged or more unusual that this particular organism would make this child sick like this. Maybe I should think about their immune system. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we're working through that, or maybe they have an underlying metabolic thing and we just don't know it yet. Uh, I think the expansion of newborn screening has certainly helped pick up a lot of uh, inborn errors and get children appropriate care sooner in their life, uh, which is great. And the addition of TREX, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but the T cell receptor excision circles to the newborn screening that is essentially um, a screen for SCID or severe combined immune deficiency because it looks for the leftover bits of DNA you get from making your own T cell receptors and doing that gene rearrangement. So you look to see whether they are able to make their own T cells. And that's part of the heel stick newborn screen now. So we pick up those children much earlier than we used to. We used to not know about it until they were very sick with something. Very interesting. So how does um, adding in the infectious disease specialty change what you do from being just a general pediatric physician? Yeah, so I have um, 
a slightly checkered past. I did not go straight into infectious disease, uh, even though um, I got a PhD in immunology a very long time ago. <laughs> uh, and uh, I originally thought I was going to be a peds GI doctor, and then I was a hospitalist for a very long time, and went to deliveries and took care of inpatients and did a lot of general pediatrics there, but I also did outpatient pediatrics. So I did a lot of other things before I came into doing infectious disease. And then when I started infectious disease, then I got into doing more infection prevention as part of that. So infectious disease, again, we, you know, we're looking for what do we expect? What do we not expect? And then how do we manage that? And then the biggest part with pediatrics, and you can see this with the pandemic right now, is that many drugs are not studied in children, or if they're studied in children, they're only studied in certain children. And so um, for a few brief weeks, I had monoclonals that I could give to smaller children, but that was bamlanivimab at a sevimab that was approved down to one kilo. And we were excited that we finally had an option for children under 12, under 40 kilos, because that's the cutoff for many of the drugs and many of the agents that include pediatric patients. And uh, as my pharmacist put it, just kidding, because then with <laughs> Omicron, we couldn't use that anymore. So now we're back to a product, the Citrovimab, that is only for 12 and up, 40 kilos and up. And Evisheld, which is for 12 and up, 40 kilos and up. And some of our children are not 40 kilos or 88 pounds. And so sometimes that's because they have underlying chronic conditions that make them higher risk, but because they have what pediatricians tend to call failure to thrive or poor growth, they are smaller than that 40 kilo cutoff. And so our options are much more limited. And we were talking about vaccines. The vaccine development has been going downwards by age, but right now we only have vaccines for five and up. We were very excited to be able to add the five to 11 year olds but we don't have anything for children under five right now. Yeah, thanks a lot there. Um, before we go too much further into these things, um, so where are you from? Where'd you uh, go to school and train and all that just so everybody can kind of have an idea who you are? I feel like I'm from a lot of places at once right now. So I grew up what I call inside the Beltway uh, in Northern Virginia, kind of next door to the CIA and... Uh, <laughs> across the street from Senator Byrd and down the street from uh, Simon when he was treasurer. So yeah, a bunch of the people I went to school with, their family, you know, work on Capitol Hill or one friend of mine uh, in junior high, her dad was one of, you know, the eight Democrats starting to run for president very early on, didn't get very far, but that sort of neighborhood. Uh, and then I went to Hopkins undergrad in Baltimore, so did not go very far. And then I went to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> so I started off in the MD program. And at the time, I was going to go into geriatrics, which is why I had picked Penn, because they had one of the very first geriatrics programs starting there. And uh, when I was in Baltimore, I had worked in a lab at the National Institute on Aging, so part of NIH, but it was in Baltimore where they did the longitudinal study on aging 
for people who are more familiar with geriatrics. So uh, this was really a really long, long, long time ago <laughs> in the 80s. Uh, so I thought I was going to go into geriatrics and gerontology. And then when I started in med school, um, uh, I, well, I had a little funding problem and I was <laughs> interested in research. So I got a Hartford Foundation for Research and Aging grant in my second year there. And so I switched to doing research with Bill Williams in rheumatology. And we kind of made this deal that he would teach me some immunology and I would teach him some stuff about aging because he hadn't thought about it too much then. And then I kind of took a orthogonal, I kind of took a hard right turn because Dave Weiner's lab happened to be right there in rheumatology for no reason I quite understand. Um, and he was studying HIV. And so I got really interested in HIV and uh, the immunology and the virology behind that. So I ended up working in Dave's lab and getting accepted to the immunology PhD program. And so then I kind of did a PhD before I went back and finished med school. So it was a little bit roundabout. Uh, my PhD was basically unsuccessfully looking for the co-receptor, <laughs> didn't find it. Um, <laughs> But that places it in time. And then uh, I went back and I finished up med school. And by that point, I had gotten more interested in vaccines. So I'm on one of the very first DNA vaccine papers, the first one that came out of Dave's lab, uh, which is now a thing. There's finally now a, mm -hmm. a DNA vaccine uh, in people. But that uh, is something that Dave is very famous for the quote, that mice lie and monkeys exaggerate. <laughs> so the DNA vaccines work fantastic in mice, but it's been much harder to get them to be useful for humans, which is unfortunate because they're cheap and easy to make and you can change out parts. I mean, we're seeing that with the RNA vaccines, right? But yep. DNA is cheaper and more stable, right? You could probably lyophilize 10,000 doses and stick them in your pocket and then walk in somewhere and then Mm -hmm. reconstitute it in some buffer, right? So in an ideal world, that would work well, but we can't make be biology be what we want it to be just because we want it. So that's been uh, sort of a long road there. So I got really interested in vaccines. And at the time there was less vaccine work being done in grownups. And I probably could have pushed through that a little bit more, but um, personality wise, or something, I, I found I was a peds person. So I ended up um, going and going to DuPont Thomas Jefferson program, which now they've renamed both of those, I think, uh, but in the same um, neighborhood um, and trained in pediatrics. And at the time I thought I moved to Denver to go do uh, peds gastroenterology, uh, partly because of an interest in liver transplant. And I think of the gut as a giant immune organ from one end to the other. But it turns out I wasn't exactly a GI person. So I decided that I couldn't take money from a foundation that someone else could use because I didn't feel strongly that I would end up there. So I ended up leaving there. And then I had never quit anything before ever. So I felt a little uncertain. I didn't want to jump into anything too quickly. And so I ended up being a pediatric hospitalist for the most part before anyone knew what that was. So at the time, adult hospitalists were a new thing. 
And so I had to explain to people every time, this is what I do. And they're like, so you see patients in clinic? No, I don't see any patients in clinic. It was a, such a new concept, right? Now it's a board certified specialty, but at the time I had to explain. And honestly, each job was a little bit different. So one of them, I was sort of like a second attending in the ER and I'd see the medically sick kids and then I'd either fix them and send them home or admit them to myself, right? That was kind of how that went. And someone else did the lacerations and splinting and all that. And then other jobs, I'd resuscitate babies and take care of babies in the nursery uh, unless they needed a neonatologist to come in or and take care of ward, you know, inpatient pediatric patients um, or do uh, child abuse evaluations in the ER when a kid would come into the ER or consult on anybody that the general ER provider wasn't as familiar with pediatric issues, so they would ask for advice. Uh, so I did that for a very long time uh, before deciding that I really was an ID person at heart and going and doing my ID training at Rainbow Babies, which is affiliated with Case Western in Cleveland. And then I worked in Albany in upstate New York. Um, I covered for uh, Boise, Idaho, because uh, they had a temporary situation where they didn't have anybody uh, because they had one person leaving and the person replacing them wasn't able to come yet, but the other person needed to go on maternity leave. And so I came in and filled in for them uh, for a bit. Uh, and I also worked a couple times on the Navajo reservation, uh, doing more hospitalists and general peds, but that was something I'd always wanted to do. So that was lots of fun. And a couple of times I worked in Fakatani, which is a small town in New Zealand, which oh. was also something I had wanted to do. So it's very difficult to read my CV because I am all over the place, lots of places for varying parts of discontinuous time. But I have to say that to do infection prevention, on the plus side, I've been the doctor at the outside hospital. I've been the person in the outpatient clinic seeing the well baby visit. I've been the person in the delivery. Like I've, I've been in so many places that as each issue has come up, I feel like I could talk that language a little bit with people and try and understand what their infection prevention issues were. So in a way that's been a benefit that I have such a weird past because I've been in a lot of situations that not everybody has been in that has trained straight through. And even my residency program at DuPont, um, we covered three different hospitals every night. Um, so we covered the children's hospital, which is a freestanding children's hospital. We covered um, the NICU and a pediatric ward at Jefferson in, you know, downtown Philadelphia, but really just two pediatric units in a adult hospital system, kind of inner city. And then at Christiana, we had this humongous NICU, many, many delivery rooms and a pediatric ward in more of a community hospital setting. So we had experience of all these different settings in that training program, which turned out to be fantastic because you realize that you don't always have pediatric radiologists, pediatric phlebotomists, pediatric child life special, like all those things that you have at a freestanding children's hospital. 
that make it easier and simpler <laughs> and people who understand what you need. Uh, so uh, that training has also, I think, turned out to be a real benefit just in general, but specifically in dealing with all the issues that we've been asked about lately with the pandemic and how to deal with different situations, having that background has been useful. That, I think you are a great example of how finding what you love to do doesn't necessarily have to be a linear path. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's definitely true. <laughs> yeah, agreed, agreed. There's, there's a lot there. We probably won't be able to get through it all in the hour. So we are gonna have to have you back on to talk about some of those experiences. Cause I'm sure you've had some fabulous experiences, but um, for today, I wanna talk a little bit about uh, what's going on currently as well as some of your history in hospital epidemiology, just because being an epidemiologist in a, in a you know, a, a hospital that mostly takes care of adults has to probably be significantly different than the experience uh, that you have as a pediatric infectious disease specialist in hospital epidemiology. You guys have different problems. It's, uh, pediatrics is not taking care of little adults. They're actually unique human beings that have unique problems and unique needs, right? I think so. I think our specialty is a specialty. Uh, and when it comes to things related to the pandemic, for instance, we can't just tell families to leave. <laughs> and we have never done that, right? We need families there, not because we need them to be there doing the care, although sometimes that's actually part of their preparation for discharge is making sure in medically complex children that the family's trained and knows what to do if their trach dislodges or a line dislodges or how to run their meds if they're gonna be doing that at home. But the psychosocial part where kids need their families and we, nobody wants to take care of a child who's been separated from their family, for the most part. Uh, teenagers sometimes want their parents to leave, <laughs> but uh, we, we don't bar parents from coming. And so we've had a different situation in terms of what does our visitor list look like. And then for some of our chronic children, it's been very, very hard because they have siblings and it's been very difficult to have siblings visit some of these chronic kids or other members of the family because we have to be aware of the environment and the risks and all that in terms of bringing infections in. And if you look at pediatric uh, infection prevention guidelines, we usually have a respiratory season where we have different guidelines for visiting siblings than we do during non-flu season, non-respiratory virus season because of the risks to many of our patients that, you know, RSV may be a cold for most grownups, but it can be a reason to be on a ventilator for a premature or a formerly premature child. So we have to take those risks seriously. And then with COVID, we can't really get sick children to mask themselves reliably. So we have to think about that. 
And then uh, we were just talking about other uh, infectious disease issues uh, at a meeting we had yesterday where children have other issues. So uh, certainly there's some adults who are in diapers um, or uh, are not continent, uh, but that is extremely common in some of our children. Now, sometimes that means we don't worry about Foley's, so that's nice. <laughs> but then just geographically, if you see a baby, so when I used to attend deliveries and I would have a baby who would need to be monitored in the neonatal ICU, before I took parents in, I would often explain to them that most of what you were going to see on your tiny child is just monitors. Because by the time the heart sticker that holds the temperature probe on is an inch across, but on a tiny baby, that's half their abdomen, right? <laughs> and so by the time you have cardiac leads and a pulse oximeter and a temperature probe, and then an IV with an IV board on a tiny baby, they look like they're covered in all sorts of things going on. And maybe they're on a nasal cannula and that's why they're there. And that's why they need the IV because we can't feed them yet because it's not safe to have them feed when they're working on breathing. Just to warn the parents that almost everything you will see is monitoring. So when you go to put lines in a child, if you think about trying to get an IV into a child, a dehydrated chubby baby is extremely hard to find an IV site on, right? Because those veins are very small and you're trying to hit them when they're a little dehydrated, right? So it can be very hard to get access. And so we end up a lot of times having to put a line into a femoral vessel in a baby, in a diaper, and the distance between where their femoral site is and where their diaper is, is very small, right? So it's hard for us to get separation between where lines are on a child and them eating or their bodily functions. It's just hard to get very far away. So our dressings and keeping the line sites clean is tricky. <laughs> It can be difficult. And then we have patients and not that adult patients are all willing to leave their dressings alone, but we have a <laughs> potentially a greater percentage of uh, patients who will pull at things or poke at things or just try and take things off that they don't want to have uh, and not leave them on as easily. Yeah, whole other set of challenges, that's for sure. It is. I know I can't even get my kids to leave a Band-Aid alone, so I can't even imagine them being in the hospital for something. Yeah, try to keep an occlusive dressing on. Um, I assume that they just must have tiny occlusive dressings that, uh, you know, not being a peds doctor, I mean, but you'd have to assume. I mean, the ones that we use would probably wrap around somebody's arm, you know, multiple times. Uh, so it's just this this the scale of things in these really sick, tiny kids is just amazing. You know, in my, my training, I don't know, my, my med school, I felt like I was much more ready to take care of adults. And if I would have gone into peds, I would almost would have been like starting at almost ground zero. It just seems like there's so much focus on adults and adult care and everything else that, 
going into peds, I suppose I could have taken more in my fourth year of electives that probably would have prepared me a little more if I'd known that was the way I was going to go. But it just would it just was a foreign world when I had to do that rotation. Yeah, I was in the ER very early on in my training and the ER attending on with me, Maggie Atia, was like, do you know any peds? You don't know very much. I'm like, well, that's why I'm here is to learn it. <laughs> but I'm sorry. I don't know it. I'm working on it because my first couple months had been one was a neonatal ICU month. So that did not help me with general peds. And one was developmental pediatrics, which was more, you know, behavioral assessments, which is somewhat helpful, but, you know, for the ER setting was less helpful in knowing how to manage croup or some of the practical stuff that you had to know, right? (laughs) Any of that. Now, is this kid sick? Do I need to put him in the hospital or can I send him home? You know, that's, (laughs) I felt better by the time I was a third year and, you know, the ER attendings would genuinely asked me what I thought of a kid. So I think I got better. Oh, I'm sure I you did. I showed improvement. So, <laughs> uh, but it is a learning curve because I mean, our patients can be more than 200 times different in size. If you think about that, Makes that we're sense. on, because, <laughs> you know, we have not too many half kilo babies, but, or smaller, but that can happen. And even a one kilo baby is not that uncommon for us. And then, you know, we have adult sized patients mm-hmm. who can be well over a hundred kilos. So that difference just going around from unit to unit is something to think about. And it comes up for treatment too. So not just the age cutoff, but genuinely uh, things like renal function change, um, in the first week of life and also depend. So it depends both on your gestational age and your postnatal age in terms of what your renal function looks like and figuring out, uh, drug dosing and, you know, the volume of distributions different in a baby because they're more water and they're kind of more porous. <laughs> so we, we think about them a little differently. And then from the ID standpoint, they can have problems with organisms that other people, except maybe some immunocompromised people won't have problems with. So we have to think a little differently that way. And so, uh, you know, we love our peds pharmacists because they save us all the time. I don't know how many times I get asked by somebody, well, how much uh, ibuprofen or Tylenol should I give my kid? And I'm like, you know, you're asking the wrong person. <laughs> I, can, I, I can go look up the, the, the milligrams per kilogram and everything else, but you're going to have to tell me, you know, how old your kid is and what they weigh and everything else. Cause I really, it's not just something I carry around in my head. <laughs> well, on the plus side, when they get to a double digit age, they, they generally top out at the adult dose. So then you're safe again. Yeah. But Pediatricians are really good at doing multiplication and division in their heads because we do it all the time. And then we're trying to figure out what's actually measurable by a human being. So I could tell you that your child's dose is 62.5 milligrams, but that's not really helpful. Right. Right. (laughs) So, you know, that might be fine in the hospital that the pharmacist can draw it up and send it in a medication syringe or something. But when you're thinking about, you know, 
trying to get medications for children. So we have to deal with, well, their dose should really be about 110. So I can get it as a 250, but the 250 isn't scored. So we can't do that. So we probably have to get the suspension, but suspensions are their own nightmare um, and generally very expensive. And so that can be a real problem for families. So you have to figure out what the kid will actually take and what form you can give it to them in and what is going to be close enough <laughs> for their dose uh, that you can get. So we do some negotiating there. And then a lot of pharmacies have, you know, what we call like the wheel of yuck where it tells you what flavoring <laughs> might be better for covering up the flavor of clindamycin versus covering up the flavor of clarithromycin or something like that where, and some things you just can't cover up the flavor. <laughs> and then we have strategies about oh, this one could go in applesauce or this one could go in chocolate syrup or you know, or can you convince your child to get it down and then give them like, I had to get my son to take some steroids and, you know, I was like, okay, just get it down. And then um, I will give you, you know, one tablespoon of ice cream, like just get it down. And then we'll give you a palate cleanser so that we can do all that. Bribes are important. So we've heard a lot of people say, you know, COVID-19, it really, really isn't that bad, maybe just a cold, and kids really don't get it. Um, what is your experience with that? So I am beyond grateful that children do so much better than old people. Absolutely. <laughs> it has been much, much less terrible in children than it has been in people over 65. No argument. However, <laughs> that said, um, having 1% of children with a very easily transmitted respiratory virus uh, getting admitted to the hospital is significant, um, even if it's a tenth of a percent, right? If you think about how easily kids pass around other things, um, if a child is admitted to the hospital, once they've reached the point that they need to be admitted, they actually end up needing a higher level of care similar to adults who get admitted. So fewer of a smaller percentage come in the door, but those who come into the hospital have a 10 to 20% chance of needing high level of care. So this is admitted for, not admitted with infection. Uh, so we have quite a number of children who end up in the ICU needing a lot of support, including a lot of respiratory support and blood pressure support. Many of them are teenagers that we've had, but also younger children, we've had all ages, that have ended up needing that high level of care once they're in the hospital. And that's been true across the country. Uh, DC Children's published a series. Um, one of the New York hospitals publishes a series early on, but you can see pretty clearly once they come in the door, unvaccinated children end up uh, needing ICU care. And we've had um, 
children with comorbidities do have a higher chance of having severe disease. So if you look at the recommendations for the use of citrovimab, the use of remdesivir, the use of other agents in treating these children, we do have many similar risk factors as in adults. So children with diabetes, uh, children with congenital heart disease. We have a fair number of children with chronic lung diseases. So for us, that'll be former premature babies. That will be cystic fibrosis patients. Um, you know, we have many different syndromes, but the pulmonologists take care of many children with complicated chronic lung issues, and they can get into big trouble. We have a fair number of transplant patients, some of whom have ended up in the hospital with COVID, either renal transplant. Um, we have heart transplant patients we take care of. We don't do lung transplant, um, so we haven't had that, but that's been a big issue at other centers for those patients uh, needing care. Yeah, I was going to ask, you answered a lot of the questions I was going to ask is what, you know, what kids were you seeing get admitted? You mentioned the ones that are unvaccinated with, you know, a lot of them have chronic health problems. So similar but to what we're all. seeing, but not all, right? So if you look at the COVID net data, you can, you can select just pediatric and you will see all those risk factors, not quite the same percentages in adults, but you will see all those same risk factors. But I will tell you that something like 45% of the children admitted with COVID do not have any underlying disease or at least previously diagnosed. Yeah, is, um, are they mostly unvaccinated though, those, those children that do not have underlying diseases? Yes, and we've uh, started doing some uh, informal tracking. Uh, one of my infection preventionists is working on collecting that information now that children um, have been vaccinated. And it's looking like the children that we are seeing be hospitalized who are vaccinated are vaccinated, but not boosted. So they would be able to, currently uh, after, so currently children 12 and up are eligible for boosters five months after their mRNA series right? Because we don't use J&J &J under age 18. Mm -hmm. So it's all Pfizer. So those children that we are seeing get admitted for COVID are ones that are either unvaccinated or vaccinated, but not boosted. Question on the booster shots for, for that age group, the 12 to 18 age group is, you know, there was some concern early on, at least when we had Delta. So Omicron kind of is a game changer, right? But that, you know, some of the, you know, there was some myocarditis type issues and, and just concern that maybe kids didn't need that third dose because of the, the risk benefit ratio. And it seemed like two doses were doing okay against Delta. But um, I assume that that whole line of thinking for that age group has completely changed with Omicron. Well, so it was already recommended to give a booster ages 12 and up. And in terms of safety data, so Vaccines rolled out 16 and up, then 12 to 15, and then 5 to 11. And so boosters are recommended sooner for the 16 and up. Um, and they uh, recently added 
the same time they went to five months instead of six months for boosters, they added the 12 to 15 year olds. If you talk about myocarditis, the biggest risk for myocarditis related to vaccine is 12 to 29 year old males, which is the same highest risk group for myocarditis due to other reasons. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about the myocarditis is, you know, this is the secret of medicine, right? We put a fancy word on it that doesn't actually tell you anything, (laughs) but it sounds like I've told you something, right? So uh, just the same as hepatitis. So I say you have hepatitis. I haven't told you, is that due to alcohol, chemicals, viruses? Like there's so many reasons that you could have hepatitis. So it doesn't explain that. And so when we say myocarditis and pericarditis, people have been lumping them all together, but there are actually many different causes and many different pathophysiologies within myocarditis. And the myocarditis that we see vaccine associated has very quick onset and very quick stopping. And their function is much better in the setting of myocarditis than our viral myocarditis that we see in this age group. But there is something about males in that age group that puts them at higher risk because the risk is something like uh, one in 15,000 second doses of mRNA vaccines in 16 and 17 year old males uh, (laughs) or in that higher risk uh, older teen males can get myocarditis. Now with COVID, it's probably one in 5,000 that get mm-hmm. COVID myocarditis, which is much more severe and much slower to turn around and much more significant, right? But even numbers wise, it's a lower number. And we've had one or two children. I only know for sure of one at Children's that was watched overnight essentially for vaccine associated myocarditis and got treated with NSAIDs. So <laughs> this is not much of anything really, but we watched them to make sure that they were okay. And our cardiologist, Gene Balwig, let me know about them. MISC, which we haven't talked about, the other brand new syndrome we are now experts at related to SARS-CoV-2. So right, COVID, even though everyone uses it interchangeably, is the syndrome, right? Coronavirus disease. So, um, just like AIDS, right? So HIV is the virus. So the syndrome is COVID and that is the acute infection. But in children, we have MISC or MISC or PIMS. It depends on which country's definition you're looking at. Here we call it MISC for multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children associated with coronavirus infection. And this happens two to six weeks after your acute infection. Many of those children were asymptomatic with their original infection, and we have to show by serology that they have antibodies to nucleocapsid, or if they're unvaccinated to spike proteins, fine. Um, But it's a post-infectious syndrome with a lot of inflammation, most commonly with fever, heart involvement, GI involvement, and mucocutaneous changes. Uh, And uh, the kids with cardiac involvement can be incredibly affected by it. And that myocarditis, pericarditis, we see valvulitis, we see coronary artery changes. We don't see aneurysms as often as we see with Kawasaki disease, which is another similar syndrome, but we see coronary artery changes and we have had some kids with aneurysms, Uh, but we see pericarditis, we see uh, systolic and diastolic dysfunction and a third to a half of these kids end up in the ICU. 
And that's maybe one in, I forget, 32,000-ish, one in 34,000-ish uh, kids with infection are thought to get MISC. We don't see siblings getting it, so it's not clear why one mm -hmm. kid gets it and another kid doesn't. But many of those kids did not have a known infection or they weren't symptomatic with COVID. They can be. We had a kid who had completely classic COVID and osmia and cough and all that and was recovering and then developed MISC. So we've seen it both ways. So it's hard to know um, why some people get it and some don't, but they're not kids. Even the ones with COVID symptoms aren't the kids who are getting hospitalized. So it's something that's happening with the immune response going wrong. Um, and so we were very worried that vaccine was gonna induce the syndrome, right? <laughs> That was a big worry. So that's been something that's been monitored in all the trials because we worry about that, um, but we haven't seen that the vaccines cause that. And in the five to 11 year olds, we've seen less. And the interesting thing about the five to 11 year old data is kids weren't excluded from that trial if they had positive antibodies at the beginning of the trial. And they didn't show any difference from kids who were seronegative at the start of the trial in terms of side effects. So no difference in the amount of fever, soreness, fatigue, whatever. Um, the side effects were, profiles were essentially the same, whether kids had evidence that they maybe had an infection before they were in the trial, uh, than ones who didn't have evidence that they had an infection before the trial. So that has been something that has been watched very, very closely, but we are not seeing the rates, and that's what we expected, that we wouldn't see myocarditis to the same extent in five to 11 year olds, one, because they just don't get myocarditis as often for other reasons. And two, the dose is a third of what the bigger kids are getting. So we didn't expect that they would have it, but that's held up. And when they did an analysis at 9 million doses in, they didn't see any difference. And there's ongoing monitoring, but it doesn't seem like if it is, it's very rare. So uh, that's been really reassuring. Uh, and so I personally vaccinated my 16 to 18 year old male at the time that vaccine was eligible. <laughs> he was eligible for it. I vaccinated my 12 to 15 year old at the time they were eligible. And I have just vaccinated my five to 11 year old at the time they were eligible. So. There has not been any hesitation on my part or my partners or people I know that are in pediatrics and pediatric infectious disease and pediatric cardiology in terms of vaccinating children. And we think it's really important. That's and studies just came out showing that MISC happens less often after even one dose of vaccine and lower after two doses. So everyone awesome. should get vaccinated. So overall, it is less risky to get vaccinated than it is to get COVID. Absolutely. I mean, even if you ignored all the rest of COVID and just focused on the myocarditis, the myocarditis is much less severe, requires much less intervention, turns around faster, doesn't seem to have sequelae. You know, at three months, they showed that 91% of the patients um, had been that had been evaluated by a cardiologist were felt to be fully recovered or probably fully recovered, as opposed to you know our kids that we have with MISC and we have to give them lots of medications and lots of support in the ICU to get them better. 
So looking at the at COVID then, um, thanks for all of that. That was outstanding information, but let's just say it's been compared to like flu, influenza. If you look at a, you know, a winter where you get influenza and RSV, which would be kind of the two biggest things, I think that uh, viral things that you get that spread in a similar fashion and, and can be, you know, kind of epidemic at poor proportions, comparing them to COVID, is there any kind of comparison that you see? So there's several ways to look at it. You can look across the whole population. You can look by, you know, excess mortality, and we're definitely higher. You can do the analysis looking across the population where you compare, where you take anyone diagnosed with influenza-like illness, pneumonia, or COVID, right? And those are still well above what you would expect. So because there's a statement that we don't know how to diagnose flu anymore, right? So we're just calling it everyone with flu COVID because somehow we don't know how to diagnose flu. So even if you take everyone who has pneumonia, right, and put them all in that bin, you can show that there are these massive peaks that completely correlate with your case rates for COVID across the population. Um, and if you add up all the cases for the last 10 years, not counting the last two years, but if you add up the 10 years before that, right, the number of cases was much, 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 much lower in the US because partly pre-existing immunity, right? We have lots of people who are vaccinated. So in pediatrics, we've actually published probably, I don't know, five or seven years ago, not me personally, but in uh, the Journal of Pediatrics, um, there was a paper that showed that children who were vaccinated against flu even if they got infected, were less likely to need ICU care and less likely to die if they were vaccinated. Does that sound really familiar? So we already had all that data about influenza that even if you still get infected, you do better if you've had flu vaccination that season. And that's exactly what we're seeing with COVID. We're seeing all these same patterns where being vaccinated may not keep you 100% from getting infected, but it certainly um, improves how you do and how, you, uh, how your course goes. So that is the same. If you look at influenza deaths, there were like two pediatric deaths <laughs> last year. So it turns out that our prior studies that had looked at influenza-like illness was very fuzzy because we didn't know for sure who had flu and who didn't have flu. What we have is population-based data in multiple countries showing that if people wear masks and socially distance, flu does not circulate, right? <laughs> we had, and you can go on the Nebraska respiratory virus dashboard. It's right there publicly available right at the top of the page. You just click on that link and you go to the influenza tab and you can see that there was no circulating influenza when we were doing these measures. And that was true elsewhere and that was true around the world, right? And so it turns out that works great for flu and unfortunately not quite as well for COVID. So SARS-CoV-2 is circulating more. I think it's important to mention too that, you know, we didn't see these cases of influenza, but we were still testing for them. Yes. I think that's what a lot of people think. Like we just didn't find it because nobody was testing for it. We were all testing for COVID. So the majority of the tests that come out of my hospital 
um, because we use commercial platforms because we don't have a big fancy lab like UNMC does, uh, <laughs> that uh, we tend to use the quad test. So because we are looking for the things that cause problems in pediatrics, so we look for influenza A, influenza B, SARS-CoV-2, so COVID, and RSV. So you know, that's how we knew we were getting more RSV in August than we had seen previously in summer. It's usually a winter virus. Uh, but so we're testing for all four at once. Occasionally children will test positive for more than one. And then the other test we use is a bigger panel that has the endemic coronaviruses, the four usual cold virus coronaviruses on there too. So those have an assay that assay can tell the difference between those four and SARS-CoV-2 also, and has flu and has RSV on there. So it, and some other things like human adenovirus and such. So we are testing for multiple things almost every time we test. And so we know that it's not the same and they are genetically distinct. And the way those tests work is they're not cross-reactive. So we know that those numbers are separate. Great. Yeah, we've already reached an hour. My gosh, thank you. Um, we're going to definitely have to talk again because we've still got some more questions that we would love to discuss with you and go through more pediatric uh, infectious disease and epidemiology and COVID. So we'll have to do this again. <laughs> yeah, it was great. I learned so much. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah. We, we have to promote pediatric infectious disease. Right. It's been hard to get people to go into adult infectious disease. It's been really hard to get people to go into pediatric infectious disease. But we do fun stuff. We do cool stuff. And our patients are cuter. So. <laughs> <laughs> I won't argue that. I won't argue that. <laughs> well, thanks again. Uh, we appreciate your time. And uh, hopefully we don't have to meet again uh, to discuss what we discussed yesterday again too soon. <laughs> no worries. Thanks. Thank you so much, Dr. Sato. And for our listeners out there, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and we will catch you next time on Dirty Drinks. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.